Welcome to episode two of the game. I'm Pierce and joining me tonight, as always, are Lee and Martin. How's things, lads? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, right, so tonight's guest, we are delighted to be joined by Liam Kelly, author, historian, and most importantly, a Celtic fan. Liam has written four books on Celtic, along with hosting his own podcast, the Celtic History Podcast. Liam, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on. See, Liam, just for anyone who doesn't know who you are, uh, could you give us a little bit of background into yourself and how you became a Celtic fan? Uh, yes, I'm born in Bournemouth, uh, 24, and my connection to Celtic is through my granddad. Um, he's from County Offaly, and he moved over to Surrey for work in the 50s. Um, through him, my dad kind of supported Celtic, and then um, I got passed down to me pretty much without any choice. Not that, not that I'm unhappy about that. Um, and then, yeah, we used to used to go up quite a lot um, flights from Bournemouth with Ryanair for a thirty pound return for a time in about two thousand and three, two thousand and four. Um, so I used to go to a few games as like six or seven years old. Uh, like the first game I went to was at Anfield for the quarterfinal when I was six. Oh, that's unfortunate. And then, and then um, from about 2015, I started getting a season ticket then when I could start working and afford to come up on my own. As I am so obviously with yourself being based in Bournemouth and growing up in Bournemouth, what do you make of the the Addy High rumours? And it's also uh, worth noting that you played under Addy High for Bournemouth. What's he like as a man, and what do you think he could bring to the club going forward? Yeah, so when I played under him, was in under fourteens. Um, so that was about around about two thousand and nine. I think it was just before he got the first team job at Bournemouth. Um, so he's quite kind of quiet but at the same time because he was well liked at Bournemouth as a player um, and he was obviously knowledgeable and stuff he had a lot of respect in a different kind of way from like kind of Roy Keane type people that get respect maybe through like fear his was a lot more different was was just um, had a lot of time for everybody Um, from like the first kind of training session that he took with us he knew everybody's name straight away, which, although like, that's kind of just a small detail, we had so many different coaches coming and going in our age group that a lot of them, they forget about you or forget who you were or whatever, and he just knew everyone straight away, so immediately kind of just got everyone settled, got everyone to respect him. Um, and then he just had like his set way of playing, even back then straight away changed everything about how we kind of trained, um, all the pre-season fitness work changed, and then his whole his whole ideas about playing out from the back and that kind of thing completely changed. And then once he went to first team manager, that all stayed throughout all the different age groups and the youth setup as well. So like I would think he would bring he'd bring to Celtic a clear kind of style of play. Um, he'd bring a lot of knowledge and uh, experience obviously from the Premier League um, and probably would get more respect and more of a better reaction out of modern day players because his kind of demeanour the way he is that's sort of more suited to the modern game than you say the types of Neil Lennon's Roy Keane's and kind of people are sort of probably a bit outdated nowadays Is there a general chat in Bournemouth that 
Um, the, the, do you know yourself, rumours go about, um, especially down in, in the hometown and stuff, is there rumours going about that the deal's done? I know it's being reported that the deal's done on social media, but I'm uh, <coughs> a wee bit worried. The longer it goes on, I'm, you know, I'm starting to get the fear. Um, so is there a wee bit of inside knowledge that you can provide us with here? I know a couple of people that are in and around Bournemouth that not necessarily in touch with Eddie Howe right now, but they'd be in touch with people that would know him. And the one thing I've heard constantly is he won't go to Celtic because he won't move away from here. Um, but the thing is, I've tried to say to people, Burnley, although it's nearer in mileage, like Glasgow's actually nearer to, you can fly back in an hour. So I don't see that it's a million miles away, really. And unless he takes like a Brighton, Crystal Palace or Portsmouth, a job like that, then I don't really see how he can ever get another job in football if he won't move away. And say so Glasgow seems a lot nicer than Burnley. So, um, say so all I've heard around here is that oh, he won't move away. It's it's far away. Um, and the only other ones is people that have um, been supporting Bournemouth or that have worked at the club say that he'd be a really good manager at Celtic. That they reckon. Pretty much, he'd um, straight away bring success, but I've not actually heard any, anybody saying that they've got any knowledge that anything's been done and dusted. Like, so, we actually spoke about this offer just before uh, we come on here. Um, we talked about Richard Hughes. Um, who do you think that's a sticking point? Like, I know there was there was talk that Fergal Harkin was going to be coming in from Man City. I think that was basically um, put it like it was a basically a done deal. Do you think that's a sticking point, or do you think like there's there's also rumours going about that he's a massive Celtic fan himself? Um, do you think that, that that that's something that the club are working towards? From from all the discussion, it seems to be like from the Scottish press, and it seems to be that that might be part of the problem. Um, but he hasn't worked under Richard Hughes the whole like throughout his whole time at um, Bournemouth. He worked with him towards the end, but say from League Two, League One, them kind of days, there was nobody nobody um, above him as such. He didn't have like a director of football, a technical director or anything. Um, I mean, they had a transfer embargo, so they didn't even need anybody to make signings as such. So I don't know. I, would, I wouldn't have thought it would be a, like a deal breaker having him or not. But then again, the reports in the papers say otherwise. So, um, I don't, I don't know a huge amount about Richard Hughes, um, but I would have thought that if he had the chance to get back into management and work at a big club like Celtic, and if it was someone like Fergal Harkin, they seem to have like he seems to have quite similar ideas with the way Man City play. I wouldn't have thought that something like couldn't be arranged between them. Uh, sorry, Liam, just quickly two seconds. Is Mark Burchill down there with Bournemouth? Uh, I don't think so. I haven't. He might. He, he might be, but not as far as I know. I, 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 just, I, don't. I thought I read he was an age or a scout down there, but I could be wrong. Yeah, because I've seen the, um, the rumours were that he was. If Eddie Howe went to Celtic, he wanted Mark Birchall to come up as a head scout. But I haven't heard anything about him being down. What talent as a teenager? But was it not the fastest ever hat trick in Europe at one stage? Yeah, Jonas Esch yeah. or whatever they were called. Jonas Esch. Was, it, was that 7-1 in that game? 
<laughs> I think we beat them 7 1 at Celtic Park. Can't remember what the score was over there, but I was at the match at home with my dad and my brother, the um, brilliant young talent. Um, I'd just like to ask you, Liam, about uh, your relationship with politics and how that intertwines with Celtic. Um, I think most people listening would be aware of some of the books that you've written and the fact that you also um, are involved with writing for the Star as well as the Irish Voice. So, in relationship with Celtic, why do you think there's a prevalence between politics and the football club that you support? Um, obviously, from from the whole reason that the Irish were in Scotland to start with, it's political, as everyone knows, like the true stories of things like the famine, that there were other, other sources of food available that were being shipped out of Ireland. Um, then the treatment of the Irish when they arrived in Scotland, all of this uh, links to politics just to begin with. But then like, the people that founded Celtic were all involved in like Irish nationalism. Um, there's like over 20 people that were involved in founding Celtic. Um, and like good 80% or so of them were members of like the Land League. Uh, from the really kind of earliest days, you had people like Michael Davitt that was uh, like a Fenian that was to have time in Dartmoor Prison. Uh, he was the club's second ever patron and laid the first sort of turf at Celtic Park. Um, when he laid that turf, they had T.D. Sullivan that was invited along to sing God Save Ireland, the song about the Manchester Martyrs, and that would have been quite like a recent event at that time. So it would have been something that's like, it might be quite a soft sort of song today, but back then it would have been something that like the established, yes, controversial. Um, but like the club, there's a quote from uh, Dr. John Conway that was one of the founders of Celtic. And after Hibbs had won the Scottish Cup, um, he gave, he was like doing the victory speeches. And then he started saying that Glasgow Irishmen should go and do likewise. Um, and basically to found a, an Irish team in Glasgow that said not only for social but in political matters as well. So that the goal of every Irishman's ambition, the legislative independence of his country will soon be attained. Um, and then the club did a lot of work with home rule movements um, in the early years that really publicly they spent, they sent a delegation to the Irish Faith Convention in 1896. Um, that was in Dublin and that was to plot away towards Irish home rule. So that was a real public thing that the club kind of, and well, the club and the people that were on its committee, they had that public outlook from the start. And then there was matches held at the original Celtic Park to raise funds for evicted tenants as well. Um, so there's a mix of like Irish freedom uh, and then like sort of socialist kind of politics as well. So it's not something that's just come from the support, it's come from the club as well. And then obviously the conditions that the support has come from um, and always represented. So it's, it's kind of intertwined. And then obviously as things in Ireland move beyond home rule into the, like the Republican sort of struggle for independence, then with the parallels between like the Glasgow Irish and what was happening like, in the North of Ireland and things, then it was kind of natural that the, support would take that up even if obviously the, the like the board is then going to move away from that public sort of um, definitely yeah. 
Well, there was consistent right, part of sorry. sorry man. Am, I right in saying, am I right in saying that um, inclusivity was a was 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 introduced from the very off, from the very beginning of Celtic Football Club? Um, I can remember I'm going to mention him a few times here. My grandfather was the reason I started supporting Celtic. He was a massive fan. I can always remember him telling me that um, in the very early days that Celtic actually sent an orange man to be their goalkeeper. So there was no sort of there was no set sort of standards at that time. Um, Inclusivity is, is part and parcel of the club, and it always has been. Is there any sort of? Do you have any information on that yourself? Or yeah, so um, 1890 was the first like non-Catholic or somebody from outside of an Irish background that Celtic signed. To say it was a goalkeeper, uh, and I think his name was Jamie Bell, <laughs> Jimmy Bell. Um, <laughs> but then uh, the following <laughs> season. We signed the guy that they called the Calais Orangeman. It was Thomas Duff. That was another goalkeeper. Um, but Willie Maley wrote a book in 1938. And there's a quote in there that says, much is made about our religion, but since at the second season of the club, um, we've signed like Jews, um, Protestants, all different religions, basically. Um, and it goes on to say that I think players like McNair, Johnny Thompson, all these different players. But yeah, it goes right back to say the club's second season, um, and there was no, and it wasn't like there was a change of policy in the second season. There just never was a sectarian policy. Just obviously in the first season, if you're starting a new club with an Irish kind of a identity. Then naturally, they were going to try and attract players from that tradition to the club, and then say very quickly they started then. Um, you know, signing players and inviting people from like other traditions. So, um, say they had a, a political identity and um, an Irish identity, but it was never like exclusive at all. Definitely, the um, that's a that's a fantastic point. And the in relation to the modern day view of Celtic, we're going to come on to that in a wee minute and how it ties in with with the sort of perception of what Celtic is and its cultural tie to Ireland. But in relation to the start, you were touched on Michael Davitt and then you also talked about his influence in creating the Land Leagues. Um, if anyone's ever over in Ireland and they're lucky enough to get up to the six and they can go and see Mayo, I would advise them to go and see the Michael Davitt Museum. It's not state-sponsored, it's um, free to enter and it's a fantastic area um, to sort of immerse yourself and understand the real history of the man, but also his links and connotations with Celtic. But talking about David more specifically, what is your understanding of him and his time within the Irish Republican Brotherhood, but also more prevalently, perhaps, um, the creation of the Irish Land Leagues and why they were so pertinent at the time? Yeah, so he would be, um, I'd say, rather than just purely a, a nationalist, like a, a flag-waving type, he would be someone that believed it was intertwined, similar to James Connolly, that it was intertwined with like social reforms and say the um from that period in Irish history, um, you said with farmers that were having their crops and things taken from them and shipped abroad. Um and then people that were struggling to pay their rents and the families that were just basically struggling to survive. Um they'd be evicted by the police or the forces and um basically just left to, to starve and left to st- suffer in poverty. So he kind of stood up against that, creating the land leagues. Um, he had a, obviously a desire for like, Irish independence as well. 
Um, and so that has been intertwined as, as, as something that was needed to take control of the situation and better the lives of the Irish people as a whole. And then he also had an international outlook that he went went to different countries giving speeches and um, went to the like the Highland Crofters and spoke to them as well. Um, so he was pretty much everything that he kind of espouses is everything that Celtic is. But also another point is that um, there was an, an Ulster Protestant called John Ferguson um, who like worked alongside him was basically like his assistant in the land leagues. Um, that that he moved to Glasgow and set up a, an Irish land league in Glasgow. So um, again, that shows as well that he's also inclusive in the, in the same way as Celtic that um, he didn't care about people's religion or anything like that. So um, so his his politics matched like the, the founders of Celtic and then. The supporters and, and what I would say, you know, a lot of the supporters' politics and outlook in life would be today as well. Definitely. That's a fantastic way to tie into the next question, which is in relation directly to your politics. How do you feel that Celtic as a football club has shaped your politics? And the reason we ask that is because I think most people that are familiar with Celtic, say, for example, hypothetically, you go abroad or you go into a bar, you meet a Celtic fan. There's a very good chance, very high chance, that you would have some degree of commonality with them out with just Celtic. So you might share the same mindset, you might share the same understanding of politics, be it socialism, republicanism, whatever it may be. How do you think Celtic has played an overt part in shaping your politics? Maybe not necessarily the current custodians, but rather the support, the history, and how it sort of galvanised your mindset and changed your uh, thinking, if you like. I'd say it's... it's um, I was thinking about this, actually, before I came on, but... Um, Celtic would be as much as I like would like to think I'd come to the to the views. Like I don't have my views because of Celtic, but um, I wouldn't have been introduced to these things if it wasn't for Celtic. Mm-hmm. Then, um, like my my granddad would have been like a, he would have wanted to you know have the North reunited in in Ireland, but he wouldn't be massively political. Um, so when I was growing up, Celtic was more just about um, my Irish culture that, that I had a background that, that threw my granddad to Ireland. Um, but then when I was when I was young, it was more just about the football. And then as I got a little bit older and started hearing some of the Somerset games, that led me to look into like the situation in Ireland. Um, so I knew like the, the real basics, but it was only after that I started to see like civil rights abuses, um, like what republicanism is kind of about um, and the way that people were treated and that kind of thing. And then um, through that, it kind of led to the like the international different struggles like Palestine and that kind of thing. And so I wouldn't have been aware of any of that had Celtic kind of not had links to, to Irish republicanism and then to kind of follow on from that. And then especially all the sort of anti-racist um, left-wing sort of element. They say, I don't I don't just support it because I'm a Celtic fan. But again, I wouldn't have really been introduced to that type of um, like way of thinking and things um, if it wasn't for Celtic, to be honest. They um, say, so obviously, I wouldn't have been racist or anything like that, but, it's, but to actually take more of a 
have a left-wing stance and to open my eyes as well to what different governments actually do around the world. And um, it's a quite a funny story as like a six or seven-year-old. I remember saying that I wanted to join the army and I was older. Dear me. Off you go, son. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that they were... I thought that they were all heroes because that's what we were told in school. Um, And uh, obviously being that age, it wouldn't be something where your dad would go into huge detail about things, but he'd just kind of say, you don't want to do that. And um, (laughs) then then when I got obviously older and understood, the main main thing for me was silent, feeling that I had some uh, connection to it through Grandad. And then, say, looking into kinds of situations around the world to the oppressed people and um like anti-imperialist causes that kind of thing but say pretty much my whole outlook in life i would say was shaped by being a being a celtic fan outstanding i think so much of that just ties into what you're saying so much of that has weight and i think it means it's so much more than one just a football club or two even just about irish republicanism what you were touching and alluding on there about anti-imperialism is literally why Celtic was created. If you look at international struggle and you see parallels between what Celtic means to other countries, other cultures, just look quite recently at Match of Fine for Palestine, like standing up for oppressed people. It's literally the definition of why Celtic exists, a football club created by uh, immigrants. And long may that be celebrated as far as I'm concerned within the, the diaspora and within the support in the, in the large so just to tie in and finish on this point, and then we'll move on to Pierce. Um, I'd like to ask you, what do you think in relation to modern-day Celtic? So the current view that Celtic has in relation to its Irish culture and its relationship, and I'm not necessarily talking about the support, because you've alluded to that there and made a fantastic point, but more on about the almost, in my words, not yours, the near revisionism at times of the support, uh, sorry, of the board rather, towards the support, I personally just think that they, they churn out sort of a rhetoric around Irishness when they want to sell season tickets. But the rest of the time, it almost seems like there's an apathy and a, a disregard, if you like, for what the club foundationally meant and what it still means to the support. What do you think it means to the board going forward and how do you think they perceive themselves in that light? Yeah, so i say the, the obviously being more corporate-minded um, nowadays, um, there's a lot of a lot of parts of the history that they kind of like to airbrush out. Um, so you've got, for example, the story that I told at that Celtic AM was um, about Pat Welsh, that was like Athenian that was on the run, um, who was allowed to leave by a British soldier that turned out to be uh, Willie Maley's dad, and then he moved to Glasgow, was involved in the founding of the club and was responsible for bringing Willie and Tom Maley to Celtic. So you've got things like that, which are not like opinion. That's that's a fact. It's part of Celtic history, but it's not a story that would be very well known because it would be something that I say they'd like to kind of leave that bit out. I think the club would like to have the Irish connection for the international support that it brings and the support from Ireland itself. And as a way of um, you know keeping like loyalty from the Irish community like, in Scotland, um, but I think they'd prefer like we were singing the Wild Rover. Um, I don't necessarily want to embrace the full 
the full history of of um, everything that it's about to say. There's part of it, obviously, is just um, like the sense of Irish culture that covers all different things, not just politics, but um, also a big part of it is the politics. Um, so you can't really you you can't really pick out the bits that you want to keep and the, the bits that you don't. Um, but they probably do do that because of like sponsorships and financial reasons that we know that um, you know major companies and the media and things like that are not going to look favorably on um, songs like Boys of the Old Brigade. So they probably would just just basically pretend that it's not relevant so that they can you know, get advertising, get sponsorship deals and that kind of thing. But it's always been the case in Scotland, and I notice it so abundantly when I go away in European games. Celtic fans in general are received in a completely different capacity when we go abroad, as opposed to when we're at home. The hostility, both the police and at times other supporters, is absolutely evident. You can look at situations like Lennon being attacked in a dugout, uh, weekly sectarianism. So the club, I think, struggles sometimes between brokering a knowledge of the, the club's history and struggling to reject it but also trying to find a, a bridge with regards to commercialism. But for me, personally, when people make, sort of, if you like, cheesy sort of remarks like a club like no other, for me, that, that should have weight in the sense of what Celtic is. Celtic is, and you can't change the fact that Celtic were created for political means. It was created out of the diaspora to come over to Scotland because of conditions to, to set up a poor children's dinner table. And as far as the club's concerned, in my personal opinion, we should never lose that connection. So fair play to you for highlighting it through the books that you've written. Matt perfectly ties in with Pierce, who's going to talk to you about that. And uh, thanks very much for your contribution for talking to us here. Yeah, God, that was brilliant, Liam. I think I could have listened to that all asking these questions. Uh, but anyway, the, the first one I'm going to ask you is, uh, the first book you wrote was Our Stories and Our Songs. Yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. Uh, could you just talk us through maybe the process of why did you write the book and what was it like to write the book? Um, when I was in school, I was quite good at English. Um, but it wasn't really something that I was that interested in. I, I wasn't really keen at writing. I was more interested in playing football and that kind of thing at that age. Um, and then I just started writing. It was January 2013. Um, so I was 16. I just started writing a little bit about the Celtic support. Because they said the supporters were the main kind of reason that I got passionate about Celtic. Um, so I started writing a few bits about the social history of the support and what different fans think Celtic stands for and what, what it kind of represents. So you had some people that would say, you know, it's a Scottish club, some people say it's an Irish club, that kind of thing. So I just wanted to highlight the different like, aspects of Celtic. Um, but I never really intended it to actually become a book. I just started writing a little bit one day and then I'd got to a point where I'd written too much to leave it. Um, so I'd saved it, left it for a few months. And then one of my school teachers, when I was doing my A-levels, um, said to me that you can self-publish books now. So I started looking into it more and then um, went up to forums and social media to get the fans to send in stories and things. And then it all kind of came together to be like a, a social history of the of the support, and then it just kind of spiraled from there. Uh, am I right in saying, I could be wrong, did you come to Dublin, it must have been like the 100th anniversary of the Easter Horizon, and you did a talk on the book that day? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, in the badass. I wasn't there now, but I remember you being. I remember you being all before it. Yeah. Yeah, because I did the first book launch for that book I done and uh, the Hoops Bar and the Gallagate, and then I uh, met Kieran Kenny. Um, he was over. Yeah, Kieran's a great guy. Yeah. Yeah, he he was over for Christy Morgan across the road that night, and he said, oh, "If you, I, I I'm involved with the um name project supporters club in Dublin, so he said, give us a message if you want to come over and do something there." Um, so I'd met him for about ten minutes, and he just had a a newborn baby at the time. Sent him a message, and we went and me and my dad went over and stayed at his for the weekend, and done a launch there, and then I done another book launch in Philadelphia as well. Philadelphia, Jane, how did that come about? Um, that was through, so one of the stories that I got sent in, because there was a, a section just on um, like supportive stories from different games and bus trips and things. And it was a guy from America had seen this post on Facebook that I'd asked the fans to send in pieces to me. Um, and he'd, he'd said that he bought a Celtic top on eBay at a black goalie's top for his son. Um, but those kids like through his club in America they just that was the rules that the keepers had to wear a black top he didn't know anything about Celtic so it just happened to be a Celtic top and um, and the the top never arrived so he got in touch with the person that was selling it and he sent him over like a framed photo of the Lisbon Lions and as like as an apology and he sent a message back saying thanks for this but like who are they and then um, he sent him like a copy of several different books and he, he read them all and became a big Celtic fan through that. So that was like his story. Um, and then he put me in touch with that guy that sold him the, the top on eBay originally. And they were all in um, Port Glasgow and Greenock. And that's where like, all my best mates live now, my girlfriend as well. Um, and so like once I'd done a couple of book launches, he said, oh, why didn't you come over to... Philadelphia like we've got a Celtic convention over here um so I flew over uh ran about like I think it's January 2016 or something and then came back from there straight to Dundee United away that's mad isn't it? the place itself can bring you and just your second book is take me to you take me to your paradise yeah and uh that's more about kind of specific individual moments isn't that the club yeah, so like two themes on it, um, like individual incidents and then organised events. So organised events are uh, different things like the World Cycling Championships that Celtic held um, in the early like years of the club. Um, and then incidents are things like Johnny Doyle when he crosses the ball in and it hits the ref and he gets sent off. But it goes through, it goes through each decade of the club like from the beginning up to you know, like the... 2010s was the last decade that came out in 2019. Yeah, no, sorry, Pierce, just mentioning um, like famous stories and stuff. Have you ever heard of the story of Johnny Madden? Yeah, the um, that went to uh, the Czech Republic, went to like the father of Czech Republic. There you go, the 100%. He had a nickname, the Rooter. So, obviously, with yourself coming on, being an author and historian, I was always told this story growing up. Uh, my grandfather mentioned to me that there was a, an incident, an incident, sorry, involving a knife. Yeah, I heard, I heard this. Um, one of my friends, uh, Paul McQuaid, that writes for the Shamrock, he'd written about it. That um, was it something? It's 
if something had happened in a match, a dispute with a referee or something, and he'd I can't remember the full story entirely. But he was getting he was getting absolutely annihilated by a Kilmarnock player. Obviously, the referee turned a blind eye. Um, so what he done was he walked off the pitch because your man wasn't getting yellow carded or red carded or whatever, and he walked back on with a large pocket knife. So he handed it to the Kilmarnock player and says to him, "Listen, I'd rather you stuck this in my chest right now and, and you know kill me right on the spot fast." He says, because you're killing me slowly but surely. I remember my granddad telling me that story years ago and being blown away that a footballer actually walked off a pitch and strode back on with a large knife and just passed it. Could you imagine doing that now? <laughs> he said that um, he was called the rooter because his shot was supposed to be so hard that he uprooted the goalpost. And um, he went to Slavia Prague to become their manager and like football in the country at that time was like basically non-existent by modern standards like it didn't have tactics or training or anything like that and he completely like, revolutionized Czech football and basically created obviously didn't found Slavia Prague but basically turned them into a football team from a just a local little side um, and then I think like when he retired the Czech national team got to the semi-final of the World Cup and it was like nine out of the 11 players were players he'd coached with Slavia but he was obviously Johnny Madden played in like Celtics um, earliest teams. So you have to say he had a very eventful life, which brings me on to it'd be criminal coming from West Belfast and not be asked about the famous Charge Patrick Tully. I'm sure you could tell a few stories about, about Charlie Tully. Famously uh, scored the, 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 the corner kick, was made to retake it and happened to score again. Remember the, the year? 1952. 53. 1953. Listen, I'm only a, I Googled this before I was saying I just remember being a famous corner kick, so I had a rope down. Um, it was also interesting. I mean, the skill that man must have had back then in the 50s. Um, he also scored from a corner kick when he represented the occupied uh, the occupied six counties when they played England. He repeated it again. So, I mean, the skills, he must have been just a tremendous player. Like, Obviously, he was a character. There's many, many stories we were told growing up. Um, obviously, one of the most famous people that ever to come out of, out of the North. So there was also, um, I was reading about Charlie Tully as well, where did he ever have the same, was it a short-term contract? He had the same for Rangers? I don't know. I haven't heard that. Story so apparently that. what happened was, again, thank you, Google, very much for this. <laughs> he, he basically <laughs> there was a football club Caledonia Thistle and they got new floodlights so obviously um, they got Saligan Rangers there was like a select 11 to play against each other and Rangers hadn't got enough players so Charlie Tully apparently there was a rule then that if you were representing the club that you had to send a short term contract so we actually had to play for, for Rangers so you can imagine how that went, that went down in, in West Belfast in the 50s I didn't go down well um, <laughs> Did you know so that uh, Charlie Tully basically brought the, the Celtic song over to Scotland? But it was Belfast Celtic song first. And um, then yeah, it was like a party in the Kenilworth Hotel and Glenn Daly was there. And um, he had like a verse that was missing. And Charlie Tully basically, he'd heard Charlie Tully singing this song. And I think like, the Belfast Celtic version was like, we don't care if the money's right or wrong. Like, down the hell we care. We only know there's going to be a show and the Belfast Celtic will be there. 
Yes. So he Love it. took that bit and just changed it slightly. Obviously, uh, he was forced to leave Belfast Celtic with um, uh, the closure of the club. Um, so he actually joined the club um, on loan before he, he, he obviously joined the Famous. Um, so he went to Clevenville. I'm not too sure whether he made the parents or not. Can you name another famous Celtic player who played for Clevenville who are based in North Belfast? It's an open floor, by the way, lads. If there's no jump in. Oh, George. Is it no Frank McAvenny? Gets it in one. Go ahead, Martino. Take a bow, my man. But he never played, though, did he know? He just came for a booze up, mate, of a man. <laughs> Come over for a second. <laughs> <laughs> went up the false road for a pint in the rock. The, uh, he went to Clifton But he did West Ham, Celtic, and um, who was the other team he was in Scotland? Was it Samar? Uh, well, they played for Falkirk yeah, at the end as well. Who was it in that? Uh, there was a good St. Mirren team, and I think that was, was it Hanson and all that sort of stuff that played in that St. Mirren team. I think they had a tidy team for a wee while. Um, Aye, but aye, he, played, he played at Clifton, well, went to sign for Clifton, but anyway. Yeah, sorry, actually, it's funny, I think Liam must have been reading my mind talking about Czech Republic, because I was about to ask you about Czechoslovakia and Celtic in 1968. Would you be able to talk us through what happened at that, that time? Yeah, so um, Celtic were drawn against, if I remember rightly, Terence Farris. Um, ha, we know how that ended up. Yeah. <laughs> And yes, yeah, so it's. I think it was the first round of the 1968 European Cup. We drawn against Ferenc Faros, and at that time, um, because of the, there'd been a lot of unrest like with the Soviets over the uh, Warsaw Pact, and it was part of the Soviets had invaded, um, they'd invaded the Czech Republic, and it was um, or Czechoslovakia, sorry, and. Uh, like the Hungarians were part of that invasion, so Bob Kelly that refused to play, ref- refused to play the game, and eventually forced UEFA to like, redraw the um, that opening round because a lot of other teams, including I think it was Aberdeen and a few other Scottish teams, um, and then other British teams as well, that all kind of got behind Celtic's position of refusing to go there and protest of like what, what was happening behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and then I'm pretty sure it was either the second or the third round that we ended up getting drawn against Dynamo Kiev anyway. So we had to go had to go back there. But it was just the, the fact that he took the stance, um, which it wasn't a straightforward thing that UEFA would just agree to do that. It was quite risky that we could have been thrown out of the tournament and been given quite a hefty fine. But I just said that like the, the actions of the UN um, had basically been non-existent and the amount of people that were being slaughtered in that by the Soviet invasions um, meant that Bob Kelly's quote was, was something along the lines of there's things more important than money to Celtic. Um, and they felt that the club had to take a stand and that they could, by taking a stand, they could raise awareness like, publicly. Um, so we eventually like, won that sort of like campaign that he that he done on behalf of the club. But then I think later that year, uh, Ferenc Faros won the final of the Fairs Cup because in that year, um, that was the last year that you could play in both the European Cup and the Fairs Cup 
because the FAIRS Cup at that time was just the cities that held the international trade fairs. Um, and I remember Don Revy was, was um, basically saying that he doesn't agree with Celtic. Um, we, need, we need to stop mixing politics and football. And it's not to say he disagrees with like their, their politics and principle, but um, basically Leeds would be playing the game. So he kind of, after all the good work that Celtic and other clubs had done by joining in, um, he sort of tried to undermine it at the end. Yeah, I suppose stuff like that is what sets Celtic apart from other clubs like your average English team. Uh, it's probably a question I've asked yourself and if the lads want to answer it now. Do you think Celtic would make that same decision now if that was to happen? I would, no I would say they haven't. Like when we played um, Bersheba, the Israeli team, um, obviously the fans did with the Green Brigade both in the Palestinian flags and then the match to find for Palestine. Um, and say, but the, the the club itself obviously didn't make any statement about it and kind of um, moved away from that. Now they don't want to associate with that kind of thing. And say because it wouldn't be if you look at like the major like the major news outlets um, and a lot of the major companies, they wouldn't be on the side of Palestine. So. I think like money kind of rules nowadays. Yeah, I don't think you can ever imagine Peter Lawwell saying those things more important than money. Nah. Could you imagine uh, Peter Lawwell on the Green Brigade with a Palestinian flag? <laughs> he might that, be night, though, that night was unbelievable. I mean, there was threats of arrest and everything that night, and the, the organisation for the group also further afield. I think most people that night, if, even if they didn't sort of overtly support it in the sense of, waving a flag and I think a lot of people could downplay that like oh he's only wore a flag you have to think back to a time when in Ireland it was illegal to fly an Irish tricolor in the six counties so the representation of Ireland and what that cultural tie and what the historical prevalence of what the flag meant to the people of that six counties they could only really show that appreciation when they went to Celtic matches so for people in Palestine if you've ever watched any of the videos and if anyone listening if you've not go and watch things like an Ada refugee camp there's an Ada Celtic team and the, the follow-on for that 174,000, but more importantly, just the absolute overt solidarity and support that gave those people who are literally besieged in an open-air prison was just absolutely enormous. And their pictures resonated all around the world. So what that does, I, I believe, puts Celtic at the forefront of where it should be. And that's always siding with the people that are oppressed and never with the oppressor. I would just um, add to that as well, that in the early years, um, like the founders of Celtic that were obviously on the early committee, um, they took a public stance against the Boer War, against like the British being involved in South Africa. And there was a big fallout as well because John McLaughlin, that was president of the SFA at the time and also was one of the people that founded Celtic. Um, the S he gave a, or the SFA gave a donation to some of the British soldiers and obviously he was partly responsible as the president of the SFA and that caused a big fallout among the Celtic committee at the time. Um, and some of them tried to get rid of him from the club. Um, say that, so the club took, they can't say that's not what Celtic's about at all, but, but anyone can't say that because these are the people that actually founded the club that um, aside from John McLaughlin, everyone else, I took a stance against British involvement in that war. 
So that was already something that was outside of Ireland. It was an international, like they had an international outlet right from the very beginning. Yeah, sorry, just moving on then to your third book. Was that released last year called Walter and the Bold Boys? Yeah, yeah. So that one um, was all about, it had three sections. So I wrote this first section, which was about um, the founding fathers of the club. So it was just a profile on each of the founders' life stories. So I, I identified that 21 people um, and there's like three or four other people that some would say they were founders, some wouldn't. So like um, some people count William Ailey as a founding father, um, whereas I would say that he wasn't actually involved in starting Celtic. He became involved once Celtic was founded. So it's not something that there's like, 100% agreement on um, but still it, it covers say 21 people um, that were involved in the founding and then the next section is by Matt Cor, who's a tour guide at Celtic Park and he writes like a month by month summary of the club's first ever season and then the third section is by David Potter that's written like over 40 Celtic books and that's all about like the early like profile on the early star players Players like Alec McNair, um, Jimmy Quinn, them, them type of people. Write a book with David Potter. Like he's just an encyclopedia of Celtic knowledge. Did you get to talk to him at all or meet him? Yeah, um, I couldn't meet him because of all the COVID stuff going on. Um, yeah, we, so we had to do it all kind of online. Um, to say it was published by the Celtic Star, and like the three of us that were involved in that book, we all write for the Celtic Star. So that's how we kind of sort of got put together. Um, and then we started chatting through like online through that. And then um, Matt had been working on a, on that month by month account for a while. Um, and then we just kind of brought our ideas together and thought this would like sort of, sort of slot in quite well together to cover that early part of the history. So you've got some people would be really interested in the founders, but then other people are more interested on, like what happens on the pitch so we kind of brought that all together by mixing the, the matches and the players with the people behind the start of the club oh that's that's very that's very interesting i'll need to make sure to buy that book and then your most recent one is the holy grounds and i think people might recognize the cover is quite single or similar to an album cd that was released i think back in the 50s or the 60s yeah so the holy grounds um that's it. That's the Holy Grounds of Glasgow Celtic. Um, was a an LP. I think it was the year we won the European Cup that the club bought that LP out. But it just seemed that everybody has got a dad or a granddad or someone in the family that's that's got that. Um, so I had this idea from just from different places around Glasgow that I'd been to, like a Blue Lagoon chip shop that they said <laughs> above the chip shop. Um. Celtic used to store all their kind of cash and um, Desmond White used to have an office above it where he kind of ran all of Celtic's affairs from there. Um, and then I started thinking of all different landmarks. So it's just a guide to sites of interest and landmarks that um, tell the history of Celtic and like the little known stories through that. So it's a bit of an unusual one. And then um, so I just thought the Holy Grounds kind of as a title and then the cover design sort of fitted quite well with what the book was about. Very good idea. Uh, would you have any maybe obscure landmarks that people wouldn't know about? 
Um, my word, I should have had the copy in front of me. Um, I think I say that Blue Lagoon was one that people walk past every day. Um, one of my favourite ones. What on the no, it's um, West Nile Street in the city centre. Oh, it's just beside the Premier Inn, is it? I think so. There's a, it used to be a big, big, massive cinema next to it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Might have knocked that down now. Um, uh, but yeah, another another landmark is uh, like Parkhead Railway Station that closed down in the 60s, but the tunnel's still there. Um, and it's just behind the Lisbon Lion stand. Um, so if you see behind like Turnstiles Pub, um, there's like it's gated off, but you can, some people have climbed the gates and it's a tunnel that goes right under London Road. And uh, it's, it's like a mile long, that tunnel. And so fans used to um, get the train to matches there. And so it would go right under London Road, come out of the tunnel behind the Lisbon Lion stand and then go under another tunnel across Springfield Road. And then it's the street that's called um, West, Whit West Whitby Street now. Um, that's where the train used to stop. So it was like football specials that the fans used to get for games. Say so the tunnel, the tunnel can still be seen now, and it's um, got all kinds of Celtic graffiti and stuff on the door to the tunnel. Oh, definitely, for people to buy, it'd be a good kind of day out to walk around, find the, the landmarks. It's a shame the way things are in Glasgow, but if they put up monuments to these places, they'd barely be taken down. Well, there's ones like um, Savoy Street in the East End, like in Bridgeton, and that's where like Brother Wilfred set up the first ever soup kitchens for the four children's dinner table and then just next to it's Glengarry Park where Brother Wilfred and Brother Dorotheus that helped to found Celtic before they'd started Celtic and um, they held some of their first charitable football matches there and say so the field's still there um, so there's a lot of like places that are really important to like, the early years of Celtic You might be hard pushed to get in and gone in Brixton like yeah, <laughs> it's not walking distance to get back to more safe areas, but um, it's it was in a little enclave that was part of the it was like Norman Conks that had moved down um, into that little Glengarry area, like a little Catholic enclave in Bridgeton, and they have like to mark their territory. They've got a shamrock painting on the walls. So there's all photos of it from like the fifties onwards. And the shamrock painting still there. Oh, that's that's brilliant, Liam. Uh, thanks very much. I'll definitely make sure to buy those books and uh, encourage anyone else to buy them. I think Liam might have one question for you here. I'd just like to know, Liam, uh, we talked about it last week on the first episode. Um, obviously, we've got a, a big cup game coming up. Um, was obviously meant to be Sunday, but it's been ridiculously changed this Saturday. Um, what way can you see that game going? What are you expecting from it? I'm always always expecting to win, even the way that this season has gone. Still on paper, I'd still say that we're the better side. Um, even even though obviously we haven't played anywhere near being the better side this season. Um, I'll go for one 0 Celtic. I think after last week. It was a big improvement, and obviously it's 
they've already won the league. Um, but this is everything that like, for us to play for. I think there'd be surely the players have to be up for this one. And then with I still say like Cal McGregor, Edward Turnbull, El Yunusi on form, James Forrest. I, I would take all of them over like likes of Morelos and any players that they've got. So I think on a on a one off game, no matter how their season's gone, then we're more than capable of winning and I, th- I think we will get 1-0. You're like myself, Liam. I predicted a big, massive 1-0 win myself. Yeah. <laughs> one more then will do. We'll take anything. Anything. We'll take it. Again, like, we'll, we'll need to score more than one on the first episode the other day um, because of the set piece. Obviously, the, the way that we defend set pieces. That's that's the the worry. But for some reason, I've just got a feeling 1-0. I'll take Next a two one. Get your money on it. You heard it here first. <laughs> Chuck your lot on it. <laughs> Hello, lad Brooks. I'd like to put a thousand pounds on six one, please. <laughs> the, uh, listen, we'll just finish up here, mate. We're going to do a wee thing, a wee feature with each individual that we um, that we get on. And thanks again for your time. It's really, really appreciative, and it's also very insightful. Hopefully, the guys that listen to it and girls really enjoyed it. We'll finish with three wee questions. I'm going to ask you three questions, and then just a short explanation afterwards. First off, your favourite Celtic player and why? What is in favourite Celtic player ever or like from the current? Ever. 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 Um, well, obviously it would have been last because I grew up with that team, but so I'll not say young, that's obvious. So I'll go. Um, when, once he left, it would have been Petrov. Um, I would say in my lifetime of watching Celtic, so really from about 2000 onwards, I reckon he's the best midfielder as an all-rounder because he yeah. could do he could do the defensive side and score loads of goals. And obviously, he was part of like a top top team going to Seville. There's players like Wanyama that were really good players, but he's more like defensive. And then yeah. you've got you've got um, players like Rodic, obviously that are good attacking wise, but can't do the defensive side. But, yeah, say Petrov. Just do the quintessential box to box. It's quite crazy because if he was at Celtic now, he probably wouldn't have got the time he was first afforded when he came to Celtic to bed in because he really struggled in his first sort of six months to a year. Uh, but what a player he turned out to be. Second one's a wee bit of a curveball for you here, mate. Who is your most iconic revolutionary figure and why? Well, the the obvious one that you mentioned earlier, say Bobby Sands, because of the fact that he transformed like, the whole movement at that time, transformed it um, to being kind of heavily involved in politics as well as on the military front. Um, but he also went from um, like being able to carry out operations and that kind of thing to then being able to show that he could suffer as well for it. Um, and that transformed a lot of people's mindsets, particularly like in the free state where people maybe weren't always as, as aware if they didn't come from a Republican family, um, that they would see maybe these people that were described as terrorists and that kind of thing, actually, you know, they're willing to go on hunger strike and go 60-odd days to starve to death for it. Um, but it, but it's not just that. So it's the, the quotes that he that he left behind and the, and the poetry and things and the songs, so like the... One of the favourite quotes of his um, 
and his our revenge will be the laughter of our children because um so you can see that in a coming today that the advances that the like, republican nationalist community over there have got now with being able to go to university having their civil rights at the end of the orange state and then um i can see in the next 10 to 15 years um a border poll being held that will get the final end goal done um, obviously of the, of the United Ireland but um, after basically after his generation and the ones that went before them after all their suffering um, and everything that he went through um, that's, that quote in particular just stands out with now the next generation can look forward to a United Ireland and civil rights without any fears really of a return to war I know it's obviously seen in the last kind of week or so that there's been a bit of unrest, but um, said that hopefully that kind of thing will dissipate eventually once once everything's uh, say once the border poll happens and um, then they can hopefully go towards reconciliation in time and basically show that. He, he kind of stood up to fight when there was no other option. Then he went through suffering himself. The movement kind of advanced politically and then um, so he's created a better future for the children ahead. And, and that's the kind of message that the young people have now, that the revenge is the laughter of the children rather than um, you know, what they've had to go through in the past. Absolutely. What an answer. And what a man. The... Um... Utterly iconic. I could talk to you a bit more night, but we'll go on to the next question. Your favourite ever game and why? Favourite ever game, um, Lazio away. Um, because my dad took me to my last ever Celtic game at Anfield. It was the 2003 quarterfinal. Um, so that was the first European away game that my dad had gone to. Um since then, like when I started going on my own, I've been to like Munich, Leipzig, Athens, just got beat every time. Um, and then I said to my dad, as soon as the draw was made, do you want to come to Rome? And ended up that uh, I was going with a friend and he was going to take his mum and my mum could go so that when we were at the football and doing all that side of the trip, um, the women could go out around Rome together. But my friend's mum couldn't go, so my mum ended up coming to the game. So we had all the all the hassle of Tipex in the, the names out on the tickets and stuff to get through all the security checks. And then just to to beat a team like that away in Europe and have 10,000 fans over there. And like the atmosphere after the game as well with Papa Francesco. Even like the gig the night before with the Irish Brigade and that play, and it was just the whole... The whole trip, but um, the, the actual atmosphere at the game combined with beating a real top team because that's that's kind of where I really want Celtic to be back in in Europe doing doing things to big teams in Europe. That was an unbelievable trip. That was a fantastic trip. When they went one 0 up, it was like here we go because the atmosphere starting off was electric. They took a lead and we were like, oh here we go. Then pulled it back and then obviously. What an ending, like total fairy tale end. Um, and like you say, Liam, the atmosphere for the next couple of days was incredible. It was coming back and 
the missus and the, the, the friends were like, what was what was Rome like as a city? What was it like to go and see the Vatican and whatever else? It's like, then leave the Irish bar for four days straight. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what the fucking back end of a pint of Peroni looks like. Uh, that that was incredible, wasn't it? Mate? It was unbelievable. What a trip that was. There's all this stuff like, um, obviously, the threats of violence from the Lazio fans after the first leg with the Missile Manners yeah. and stuff. So like, my mum never knew anything about that. She thought we were going for a relaxing few days away in Rome. So done all, the, done all the sightseeing, <laughs> and then um, so when it came to the football time, um, like the gig and stuff the night before, it was, just, yeah, it was just madness. And then um, so you're worried about getting into the ground, all that kind of stuff. And, um, eventually, as you'd had some more to drink and getting the bus to the ground, and it was, it was just shaking that Edward song. The bus was rocking side to side, and. Uh, we said, Mum was saying to us, oh, it's like celebrities were getting a, a convoy up to the ground. I have no idea for the reason why we had the police escort. And then, um, so just like you said, once it went 1-0 down, you're thinking, oh, that's like the that's the party kind of done now. We just wait to get hammered. And um, like to, to come back just before halftime was good. But then that, the way that we won it right at the end, especially as well um i was down the front with my mate booing with like the the green brigade section and um just at full time ran up to the back to go and spend it with my dad didn't it and just that papa francesco going on for about 10 minutes after the game and speaking of papa francesco an uncle of mine um who was with me i didn't know this was happening but he actually dressed up as a pope before the game so we're walking through this <laughs> we're walking through the streets of rome when he was dressed up as a pope um, when we got to the ground, like he was getting a million photographs taken, turned around to me five minutes later and was like, This is the biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> my head is totally melted. <laughs> Come get a drink, start taking photos. The policemen all coming up. Oh, mate, what a trip I was absolutely fantastic. Another funny story with uh, after the game, do you remember? Obviously, it was all the threats, like you said, about coming over. The Lazio fans were going to try and start a bit of trouble. I think there was a bit of trouble. But after the game, um, the buses just wouldn't take the fans back to the city centre. So we had to go on foot. We're walking back. We were walking for a, a minute and a half. And uh, this taxi pulled up, jumped at the taxi. and was like, oh, class, you picked us up and all. Apparently, the, the Lazio fans were trying to start a bit of trouble. Turned around your mom was like, I'm a Lazio fan myself. We're like, has it turned out well? <laughs> we, were on a, we were on a bus. Um, the buses that they front and we thought nothing of it, so we were we were fine. And then later on, heard that that bus that broke down it ended up getting attacked, and they had to they had to get off. And then as they went down an alleyway, there was um, like zero ultras ran out with machetes and stuff. And every, no, no one got hurt because they managed to get away. But um, you see, it was just a man trying to get back to the hotel. And there's a couple of guys from Belfast there that were in there. Uh, Celtic tops, and they were saying, oh, would you go out and get us pizza because we didn't have colours on? And would you go out and get us pizza? Like, I'm shitting myself. And he said, like, you're from oh, Belfast, you got to be worried about. And he said, like, <laughs> no, no, honestly, he said, just, just, go, just go and get us pizza. And then the next thing, <laughs> um, I remember waking up next morning, woke up, there's pizza all around the hotel room. I'm still in my clothes and just thinking, like, what? I don't remember going to bed or anything. Um, 
and then or you could straight away it was on YouTube. Someone had put up the video of the fans after the game. And then we got we got a bus all around the city, like a sightseeing bus, and got to the Vatican. And all you could hear was loads of Celtic fans just stood outside, like the um outside the Vatican just singing Papa Francesco and you couldn't get out, out <laughs> for the next like, three months. I wouldn't know me, I was still in the bar. Yeah. <laughs> well, we went, we got, we got a, a, a great trip, uh, drank loads of Peroni and uh, got an unbelievable win against Nacho. Hard to beat. Listen, Liam, thanks very much uh, for coming on. It really is much appreciated. Fantastic uh, podcast. I think I speak for all of us that we really enjoyed it. Um, absolutely superb. You're a wealth of knowledge and uh, we really appreciate your time. So thanks so much for coming on. Just to wrap up here, um, we've got some incredible guests coming on. I won't give you too many spoilers. I will indeed tell you our next guest um, is going to be, I would describe him as a musical super Sushi, the man himself from Shubin. Uh, and then after that, it's an absolute delta, but I'll, we won't quite go into it and talk maybe on the Twitter. Follow us on the page at patreongame 1888 and then keep tabs on our movements. Um, we're going to have some incredible guests on and keep talking all things Celtic and more. Uh, Liam, thanks for being really much appreciated and um, enjoy the Scottish Cup game. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on today. I enjoy anything about Celtic's history and politics. And hopefully, Eddie Howe will be announced soon. Oh, yes. man. Super. Thanks again. Thanks, mate. And now, as I love.